Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. We're con- continuing our story. As we're looking at the prodigal son, we're in part three of that story. If you're using the Pew Bible, in front of you, it's on page 874. Luke 15, page 874, if you're using the Pew Bible. We've been working through this parable, and we've been seeing the absolute wickedness of this young prodigal. Jesus is designing the worst sinner that you could possibly imagine, at least as far as that audience was concerned. He's creating, designing, inventing the worst possible sinner. This, this sinner that in the minds of even the tax collectors and sinners who, was in the, who were in the group would have thought, this person is beyond hope. This person certainly is irredeemable. There's no way that this individual could ever come to a place of enjoying or receiving the blessing or the favor of God. He is too far gone. And in describing this sinner, and especially now as the focus turns in this third segment of the story, as now the, the focus is moving towards the father and the father's love for his son, those who are in the audience seeing this story unfold would have been shocked at the response of this father. It would have been scandalous in their minds. Every detail of what the father will do in this section of the narrative will draw gasps from the crowd. How could the father do such things? How could the father uh, avoid or or overlook the, the sins of his son? Certainly he has a responsibility to honor the law and to bring a measure of judgment and condemnation on this wicked rebel son of his. It is a story of restoration, a story of the father's love. The word uh, uh, restoration is a word that means an action of returning to something to its original condition or its original owner. Conveys the idea of repair or fixing or mending or rebuilding. And especially in terms of relationship, restoring that relationship back to its original condition. One of the sweetest stories in the Old Testament about restoration is one that is probably familiar to you. It's the the story of David and how he responds to his friend Jonathan's son named Mephibosheth. We find that story in 2 Samuel. And as the 2 Samuel begins to unfold, it's happening on on the the background of a, a defeat that's taken place in Israel. Where Saul and three of his sons are killed in battle against the Philistines. Jonathan, of course, was one of those three sons that lost his life in that battle. God had promised Saul because of the wickedness of his heart in kind of stepping outside of the explicit commands of God and crossing the boundaries, as it were, in terms of, of making a sacrifice that he had no business making as a king. And even towards the end of his life, consulting mediums, God had, had promised Saul that he would strip the kingdom out of his hands. And he would give it to this young man, David. That meant that Jonathan, who would have been the next in line after Saul, would have been uh, stripped of this privilege of, of reigning as, as king. But, but Jonathan, unlike his father, was loyal to God, faithful a man of faith, dependent upon God in every way. A man who 
knew that David would eventually take the throne away from him, as it were. But rather than being filled with jealousy like his father, he sought to protect and preserve and help his friend David. Perhaps uh, the last time that David and Jonathan ever uh, met with one another was, was the time in which they made a, they made a covenant with one another where, where David promised Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14, that, that he would not cut off his kindness from Jonathan or his house forever. Jonathan, I, I will remain true to your family. I will keep them intact. What was, what was traditional in that day and age is when, is when a, a new king or a, a new family would take the throne, they would cut off the, the previous family, any competitor, as it were, who could rise up and, and kind of form this power struggle and, and take away that kingdom from you. So, so to remove the threats, that what was traditionally done is you would remove all of the, the previous family. But David... He binds himself to Jonathan and his family. He commits himself to honor his friendship with Jonathan. Years would go by and David would eventually not just be uh, given the kingship over Judah, but also over all of Israel. And as David's reign is growing in power and scope, he sends out to find Jonathan's kids. And he hunts down a servant of Jonathan and Saul's family named Ziba. And he says to Ziba, find for me the family of Jonathan so I can show kindness to him. Ziba, who is this servant, points out that one of Jonathan's sons named Mephibosheth is hiding out, has been hiding out during the entirety of his life in a place called Lodabar which means no word or no communication. Essentially, he's hiding out in, in a city of secrets, hiding there so that no word spreads about where he is. David sends for him, and we find this touching scene where Mephibosheth throws himself down at the mercy of David. And he says, here is your servant. We find this touching scene of restoration as David speaks with him in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 7 to 13, saying this. David says to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore, there's our word, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he, now speaking of Mephibosheth, paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and all your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Here is this reject from Israel 
who in the cultural point of view should have been cut off and cut down. And David not only restores to him the lands and property of his father, but has him sit at his own table. This beautiful story of restoration. And of course, Mephibosheth recognizing his place as one of, of uh, being, calling himself a, a dead dog. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as lie? He understood his place before David and all of the blessings that David would give in showering him and restoring that which was, was, was his uh, grandfather's and his, his dad's. It provides a, a, a true picture for us of, of the parable that Jesus is sharing. This figure in our story, this, this character who comes into view, the compassion of the father, his benevolence, his grace, his restoration of this son, all of this points to the extraordinary love of this father for his wayward son. As we work our way through this passage this morning in verses 20 to 24, but, but kind of moving back to verse 17 to kind of fill out this story in its context for us, we're going we're gonna to look at the spotlight that is now shining on the character of this father. The father's character will come into view as we look at this story. Really, he is the main character of this story. He's a representative for us of Christ and his love for the lost. Notice in verse 17 of Luke chapter 15, it says this. But when he came to himself, speaking of the prodigal, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. His view of his father comes into focus as he now comes to his senses. We, we find he came to himself there in the opening phrase. In other words, he came to his senses. He, he came to a place of understanding. The clarity, the light is finally shining through the darkness of his heart. This time of solitude and desperation, of being alone of being in a place of great need and having no one to help him, he's finally coming to the place of recognizing not only his condition and that he brought this on himself, but he's beginning to see for the first time the wonder of the father in whose home he lived for all the years of his life. He had taken it for granted, this benevolence of his father, the, the, per, the protection of his home, both physically and spiritually. He had come to resent his father. He had come to want his own freedom, to be able to spend his life on his own pleasures. He, he wanted no accountability, or so he thought, until it finally led to this point, this life of ruin, as sin will always do. It leads to consequences in ruin. And, the, and as it ran its, its course in the life of this rebel prodigal son, it led to this place of depravity and hopelessness and despair. Proverbs 13 15. Solomon writes this of, of unfaithful people. Good understanding wins favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. It's the truth of every life 
that spends itself in running away from the standards that God has set. The way of the unfaithful is hard. In coming to his senses, he decides to go home. He's come to realize that he is to blame for his own situation. He's come to recognize that, that, that all of the things that he has come to experience are not his father's fault, they are his own fault. And in Luke 15, verse 18, in his clarity of thinking, he says, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He's come to place to seeing his own sin, but also seeing in the light of his sin, his father. Notice in verse 17, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. So he decides to to capitalize on his father's benevolence and throw himself at his father's mercy. Of course, in this point of the story, as the Pharisees and the scribes are listening to all that is transpiring, they, they, they may have been feeling at, at this point, well, finally, the hammer is going to come down. Finally, the son will come home. Finally, he will get what's coming to him. Surely a righteous father, like the one has been described in this parable, will recognize his responsibility and he'll finally set things straight. Now this story will finally bring some resolution that we've all been waiting for. Up to this point, of course, the father has endured mountains of shame. The shame of the son demanding his inheritance early, which in a sense was as if he said, Father, I wish you were dead. And then generations of this faithful investment that had been divided to him, now he liquidates for pennies on the dollar. And to make matters worse, he, he leaves home, he leaves his village, he leaves the nation, and he spends all of his inheritance on reckless living. Word comes home, back to his family, of his immoral, reckless life. He spent his wealth on prostitutes. And this may have been the eclipse, the the epitome of all that the son had done to finally bring a mountain of shame against his father as this blow of shame comes back to the community. You've heard the statement, hindsight is 20-20. The father had certainly brought shame on himself. What will he do as the son is returning home? Hopefully, by this point, the father had learned his lesson. At least that's what the Pharisees and the scribes are thinking at this point. What will unfold as Jesus continues this story? The best case scenario in the minds of the scribes and Pharisees as it related to this prodigal was that he would be excluded from fellowship from the family. He would live on the outskirts of the property, Maybe he would be taken care of as a, as a hired servant, but at least his needs would be met. He would not be able to expect any special privileges. He would not have any place in the family. He would share no relationship with his father or his brother. He would not have any authority or sonship to be restored. He would have no status at all in the community. He would be considered no better than a slave. But at least he would have his needs met. At least he would have uh, clothes on his back. At least he would have a place to stay. That was the best he could possibly hope for. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, the prodigal was already dead to his father. That's how things were supposed to be handled. The father would not meet this son in a very personal way. What would be expected is the son would sit at the gate. He would endure the shame for a period of time 
from the community, from the village. He would live down that shame. There would be a measure of restitution. And finally, when the father decided to put him to work after the shame was endured, then he could finally be restored to some level of help and support. There would be no embrace. The best he could expect was to to fall at his father's feet, to plead for mercy. This was not only the proper way for him to display his true sorrow, but of course, this was the only way for his sin to, to help to restore some measure of honor to his father. That was the thought. But what we find in our passage this morning, we find this process of loving restoration and forgiveness. It, it begins in verse 20 for us, where we, the, the focus now shifts to the Father's heart of forgiveness. We see this forgiveness that is swelling up and has always been present, this expectation and desire for the Father to initiate uh, forgiveness for his Son. Notice in verse 20, he arose and came to his Father But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We see this father's readiness to forgive. His readiness to forgive. This father's pursuing love, ready to forgive at the first signs of repentance. He sees his son coming over the horizon, still a far way off, and his heart is ready and eager, and he takes off and bolts for his son because his desire for forgiveness and restored fellowship. All of this, of course, was driven by compassion. Notice, the father saw him and felt compassion. There's a Greek word that refers to the bowels, these, these inner parts of, of, the, of, your, of your body and where the, the deepest parts of emotion are, were thought to come from. This pity and compassion that is so representative of the Savior's ministry. All throughout Christ's ministry, he's seen as one who is full of compassion. Matthew chapter 9, 36 puts it this way. When he saw the crowds, speaking of Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then in Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, we find when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. His father is a reflection, a representative of the Savior who is full of compassion. And in compassion, it drives him to initiate Forgiveness in this son. It was a love that was the hallmark of this father's entire life. Nothing had changed in the heart of the father. Nothing, nothing was different about the father's desire to extend love and kindness to his son. His care for the family. His willingness to endure the shame of a, of a son who demanded his inheritance early. His initiating love had always been present. But at this point... Jesus' parable suddenly takes a dramatic turn. Here was a father not merely willing to grant an extension of mercy, but to convey extraordinary love, eager to forgive completely at the very first sign of repentance before the son was able to even demonstrate the true contrition of his heart. The father is ready to forgive 
When he was still a great way off, the father's eager, initiating love is at the ready. It was, at the, it was evident that the father was looking diligently for the prodigal. We don't have the details, but Jesus describes this father as being able to to jump at the first sign of the son's presence, which indicates that he was waiting, he was eager, he was there scanning the horizon regularly for any sign or trace that his son was coming. So why was the father watching? Why did he run to his son rather than waiting for the son to come to him? Well, it's because he was eager. He was eager to initiate this this forgiveness. In all of these parables, Christ is that faithful Savior represented by this Father who is eager to forgive sin. Next, we see his willingness to endure the shame. His willingness to endure the shame. Not only did the Father run, in order to initiate restoration and forgiveness in this young man, but he ran because he wanted to cover this young man and shield him from the shame that would happen as the son would walk through the village or would walk through various properties and the servants and the people that he was acquainted with around the village would see and and pile shame on this young man. The father ran so he could absorb The shame and dishonor and disgrace that would be piled onto the son would now be transferred to the father. The father himself would bear the shame and take the abuse instead. It says he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father's actions of running to the boy and embracing him before he even became, came all the way home was a shameful breach of decorum. Running was for little boys. Running was not for dignified men. In the Oriental culture, the Middle Eastern culture, the Oriental elder, it was beneath his dignity to run because it suggests that he is not in control of his time or resources, as one commentator puts it. He says also this, he would have humiliated himself by pulling up his long robes and bearing his legs as he dashes out to greet his son. According to an ancient document, the nobleman is known by his gait, which means by the slow, dignified pace that beholdens his stature in the community. For any dignified man of this notoriety within the culture to run would be to relinquish all of that honor and dignity in the culture and and, and to embrace the shame of running. The father gathered up the hem of his robe and took off in the most undignified way. Even Bible translators have had difficulty translating this passage. One commentator says, because of how, of how out of place this, middle, this, uh, this translation would be. Instead, they put he hurried or he presented himself. But literally, in the text, it is he ran. It wasn't until 1860 that translators began to translate this text this way. Literally, he ran. It was too humiliating. It was too impossible for someone of this stature to run in this way. 
Most of us would see this as a sign of tenderness. But for the Pharisees who were listening to this story, they would have seen this as scandalous. The father, in effect, positioned himself between the boy and the shame that would be levied against him. When the father reached the wayward son, he couldn't contain his affection. Notice, we find he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Literally in the text, as he fell on his neck and kissed him. And this word for kissed, he kissed over and over and over again. This, this outpouring of affection and emotion for this son who's finally come home. The tenderness of the moment. His son is finally there. Maybe those of you who have lost a child in a store or lost a child at the park or lost a child somewhere in that, that frantic desperation of trying to track that child down. You're moving through the aisles. You're, you're looking around and, and trying to, to find them in desperation. Your mind is going crazy with the potential of all the terrible things that could happen. And then finally you turn the corner and there he or there she is weeping and you run to embrace and and to, to pick them up, the emotion of that moment is almost too hard to describe. And that's the kind of emotion we find in our story. That moment of embrace and tenderness as the father falls on his neck and kisses him repeatedly. MacArthur says this in his book. He took the boy's disgrace completely upon himself, emptying himself of all pride or dignity, renouncing his fatherly rights, not caring at all about his own honor, and in an amazing display of selfless love, he opened his arms to the returning sinner and hugged him tightly in an embrace designed partly to shield him from any more humiliation. It is significant. The father was already granting forgiveness before a word ever came out of his mouth. Does this not sound like our Savior. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. This is verse 21. I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He had rehearsed these lines over and over again from the pig pen, and all the way home, he's rehearsing these lines. He's ready to spill it out. His father cuts him off mid-sentence. Forgiveness was ready. It was willing. It was eager it was coming from this father. Son believing the best case scenario to return as less than a slave and just as a hired servant is now enjoying the benefits of a forgiving father, a loving father. How could a no- notorious rebel like the prodigal son simply be let off scot-free? Whatever happened to righteousness, certainly that's what the scribes and the Pharisees are thinking about this point. What about the law? What about justice? What about giving this son what he deserves? The law demanded absolute perfection. Sin always demands consequences. And the father could not overlook this sin Just like God the Father can't overlook our sin, every sin must be paid for, and it's only paid for in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who paid the price for sin on the cross, rose again to extend to every one of us the invitation of eternal life through faith in Christ and forgiveness of sins. The same is true for this 
young son. God's forgiveness does not dismiss sin as irrelevant and forgotten, but instead transfers that punishment to Jesus. The father is a representative of Christ received the injury and the shame and the scorn and disgrace that was intended for the young son. The, the father absorbed it on his behalf. Jesus is teaching about heaven's forgiveness and uses this story to point to himself, the one who forgives sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you enjoyed and experienced the forgiveness of sin that only comes through Jesus? As we move into verses 22 to 24, we find more about the Father in terms of his lavish generosity. His lavish generosity. Notice, but the Father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. We find the father's gifts of restored sonship. Three of these gifts that come in succession, and notice they come quickly. He says, bring quickly the robe, the sandals, the ring, so we can cover this son, his disgrace. We can help to restore him quickly to shield him from the dishonor of the community. There's no hesitation. He wanted no delay. Oblivious to his own reputation, the father is willing to shower this prodigal with these significant gifts of honor. The robe was a high honor the robe was considered, considered wearing, this robe it was, was, someone, was often worn at someone's wedding or it was worn at a, at a, at a time where a dignitary would come to town. It, it, was, a, it was a special uh, robe of great significance, giving the robe of honor to even a good son was considered um, out of the ordinary. But here he is, the father giving this great honor of this robe to his son. This ring, this gift of authority, it was the signet ring. The ring was pressed and melted into melted wax and the legal authority of the family was represented in the image of that ring. No longer are you a rebellious adolescent. In giving him this ring, you are now considered a full-grown son with all the rights and privileges of sonship in this family. Of course, this is what Christ has done for us. We find in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The honor of being called a child of God. The honor of being a part of God's family. The gift of God's grace to us. And then we come to the sandals, which was a gift of sonship. The sandals, while they may seem like the least of these gifts, was, was, was meant to demonstrate the significance of sonship within the family. Because hired servants and household slaves never wore shoes. Only masters and their sons wore footwear. So in making these public, visible statements, Jesus is shifting the focus away from the son and now shifting the focus to the extraordinary love of this father. The main character 
has been and now uh, continues to be this father and now his love for his son comes into full view. So any contempt and hatred that, that would have gone to the son for his reckless behavior has now been transferred to the father. Any blame that they would have given to the son for his reckless, ungodly behavior is now transferred to the father. If there's any disapproval, if any disgust that would have gone to the son, now it's transferred to the father because of his warm acceptance of his son and restoring him back to full sonship within the family. In verse 23, we see the father's call for a celebration. The father's call for a celebration. This will be important because in the next several verses, we're going to find this word celebration used four times. Every time it is used by the father, it's used in conjunction with his celebration with his sons, with his family. Next week, we're going to see celebration used by the older son independent of his family. The father desires fellowship. The the father desires friendship with his family and so he's, killed, he's called for a fatted calf, which is literally a grain-fed calf to be killed. It would have been an animal used for a special feast, um, conditioned and fed over a five to seven month process. And, and in order to get it to the place of, of being used for a celebration, a big celebration, like a, like a wedding or, or some special individual coming to town. And so even in the midst of a famine, when food was scarce, this father is giving this calf grain and corn in order to fatten him up for the potential of a feast. And now he's using this calf in this special way to celebrate his son's return. Such a calf would have weighed between five to 700 pounds. And as you can imagine, that kind of meat would be shared with the entire community. The the thought would be that the entire village would participate in this massive celebration that would happen for days. It appears the father decides to honor this wayward son. We're not sure why he had this fattened calf on hand. But whatever the reason was, this was more important. The town is asked now to to fellowship, to come to this celebration. The the town is asked now to participate in the joy of the Father, which harkens back to the earlier parts of Luke chapter 15, where, remember, the shepherd who receives his sheep and the woman who receives her coin, she she asks the, the rest of her friends and neighbors to fellowship with her. The Father is doing the same. In doing this and asking the village and the community to participate, he is essentially asking them to affirm his actions towards his son. So if they felt any spite towards the son and and now felt spite towards the father for his disregard of what should have been the, the natural course of action according to the law, if they felt any judgment towards the father now in being asked to join the celebration, they're, they're being invited to participate in the celebration and affirm the course of action taken by the father. Failure then to affirm the father's actions was now an offense towards the father and not the son. And now the community would need to choose to respond to the father. 
It would affect their relationship with him, their business interactions with him. So what exactly was this party celebrating? One commentator says, in effect, the celebration was really in honor of the father's goodness to his undeserving son. The father is rejoicing, not because the son was worthy, but because he had now had the long-awaited opportunity to forgive and restore the son who had so badly dishonored him and brought him so much grief. The celebration was not for the son or the worthiness or the celebrating the worthiness of the son, but to call the village and those who were living there to celebrate the abundant and extraordinary love and grace of the father. The father is in the spotlight. As we would expect, Jesus should be in the spotlight. He's the center of our worship. He's the reason why we're saved. He is the reason why forgiveness happens. It's not because of the worthiness of us, but because of the worthiness of him. And finally, we see in verse 24, the father's son is restored. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father's acts of restoration were only punctuated by his words. The ceremonial presentation of the gifts was just a, a mere gesture, but, but his words of, of affirming this transition of his son from being dead and now alive, from being lost and now found, is descriptive of this transformation in his life. Of course, the scribes and the Pharisees are wondering to themselves, how is this possible? How can the father reward the prodigal so lavishly? How can this man permit the prodigal son to enjoy the same goods, the benefits, and privileges as the son who stayed home? The elder son should have received the signet ring, should have received this special robe. The, the elder son should have enjoyed the privileges of sonship. Think of it, the boy is instantly brought in to experience the same rights and privileges as the son who never left home, who never once rebelled. It was as if the journey to a faraway country in the spending of all of his inheritance and the wasting and squandering of it on prostitutes never happened. And that's what forgiveness is all about. God casts our sins as far as the east are from the west. He's placed them in, on his son, Jesus Christ, who paid the debt for sin and wiped them away for those who believe in him. So what is the message for us as we conclude our time together is the picture of God's lavish grace. I'm reminded of Romans chapter five, verses six to nine, that says, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Why is it that when we see ourselves and why we even maybe share the gospel 
we point out the fact that God so loved the world, which means that we have some inherent value that's worth rescuing. But if we see ourselves in light of the prodigal, who is totally unworthy, and we see ourselves in light of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 9, we will see ourselves as those who are without strength, meaning we are helpless to save ourselves. We are worthy of death, not worthy of forgiveness or kindness or mercy from God. And so for God so loved the world is not to point to the fact that he was loving an object that was worthy of its affection, but to point to the wonder of the immense and extraordinary love of God that he loved even those people. How did God love the world? They were sinners. They were enemies of God. They were hostile towards him. They spent their life on all the wrong things. They departed to a far country. They wished their father was dead, and yet the father's love pursued them. Yet the father was willing to restore them. The father was willing to forgive. That's the message of the prodigal son. That's the message of the father's love for us to experience and understand this morning. And when we come to terms with what the love of Christ actually means for us, it should press us in to greater love and devotion for him. As we see the immense, extraordinary, indescribable love of Christ, it should drive us in to want to devote our lives in worship and and service and affection to him day by day. How easy is it for us to just go through the motions of the week to kind of lose touch with all the, the things that really matter, to, to be wrapped up in even the, the joys of a Super Bowl like tonight, and to be so distracted. I'm not saying that Super Bowl is wrong. I plan to watch it, okay? But so many of those things distract us from the most important love because I think we've lost grips with the fact of what we really deserve. We really don't understand the extraordinary love for Christ, uh, that Christ has for us. And so we really don't give a rip of showing love to him. It's not pressing us in to greater devotion of him, greater service of him, greater love of him, greater worship of him, and and a greater desire for us to make sure that, that the people that God puts us in contact with from day to day, that they too can have not just exposure with the gospel, but there is urgency in our life for to draw them in so they can enjoy the same love of Christ that we've experienced. May God help us to understand our true reality. May God help us come to our senses, just like the prodigal, of seeing ourselves for who we really are and seeing the benevolence of a kind, gracious Father who is eager to initiate restoration and forgiveness. I trust that you've experienced that. And if you haven't, I would just encourage you to come to the front when we're done with our service. I'd love to invite you and welcome you to to enjoy the benefits of salvation and forgiveness that only happen through Jesus Christ. May God help us to represent Christ faithfully in this world. God, we need your help. 
We pray for the power of your spirit to fill our lives, to give us an urgency for the day-to-day, not apathy, not ignorance, not the out of touch with the reality of life. Help us to do what Paul says in Colossians, to set our minds on things above, not on the things of the earth, because that's where Christ is. May our life demonstrate a commitment to you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.